Almighty living God, bring us up to the mountain of mercy this morning. That we may be washed by the blood of the Lamb. And so join the innumerable angels in festal gathering, singing with them. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. May this be the song of our heart, O Lord. May this be our, our very end, our very hope, our greatest joy. Let this be, O Lord, in us as a congregation this morning. Allow this coming into your presence, approaching the Mount, Mount Zion, be our, our greatest hope. I pray, Father, that you'll do this for us by the power of your Spirit. I ask, Father, that you'll do these things for your namesake. Amen. Amen. The old preacher was challenging his small congregation. Though it was a small congregation, they were sitting in a in a very large sanctuary. And he was challenging his congregation to come to Christ and to turn from the wrath to come. And the sermon goes something like this. He turned his gaze to the beautiful vaulted ceilings of that old sanctuary and he said to his congregation, if there were a hole the size of a coin, which we could see just a glimpse of heaven, all of her glory and majesty and splendor and pleasure. Oh, that we could see that celestial city just the size of a coin through the roof of this sanctuary. We would give, it would give us such an aim, such a goal, such an end that we would gladly pursue it without any regard for loss or pain or suffering in this life. If we had just that coin-sized vision of heaven. Then he pointed his congregation to the stone floor of that old sanctuary. And the pastor said, Likewise, if there were a hole the size of just a coin, which would allow us to peek into the horrors and agony and dread of hell this morning, we would strive with all fervency, diligence and care, to keep from that terrible place. Now, I remember that preached uh, in seminary. And the pastor that preached it quoted, I thought it was Spurgeon that preached that, said that. And I looked everywhere to try to find the source of that sermon. If you know it, please let me know. But obviously, years later, it stuck with me. That kind of preaching, however, today is not seen as helpful it's not seen as good. This, this scaring people of the horrors of hell and the glories of heaven is not seen as something that we should do today behind the pulpit. Indeed, many would say that it's not even biblical. I think our text this morning does that exact thing. This morning, our text brings us to two mountains. Verse 18 through verse 24 is where we're going to be looking this morning. Verse 18 speaks of Mount Sinai with all of its terror and horror. And verse 22 causes us to look at Mount Zion, the city of the living God, with great joy and hope and salvation that is there. You see, our pastor this morning in this text has been over the last several weeks of, as we've been looking through chapter 12... He's been trying to encourage his congregation. He's trying to been helping them say, we need to endure. The, the, the consequences are too great or too amazing. And this morning, this pastor gives a, if you will, a tale of two mountains. 
And he says, if we're going to approach our God, and we all will one day, we will approach our God either by way of Sinai or by way of Zion. And you see what he's doing here. This pastor is trying to say the consequences are too amazing, too cataclysmic for us to ignore or take with apathy the idea of, of just kind of being passive or apathetic about their following after Christ. See, this congregation had a unique challenge in the sense that they were not desiring to um, either pursue Christ with all they are or fall into rank paganism. No, that, that wasn't their, their desire. This congregation was, was battling with, and this pastor was encouraging them concerning this very issue, and that was, are you going to follow Christ and Him alone? Are you going to pursue the one true mediator between God and man, which is Jesus Christ and His shed blood? Or are you going to fall back into your ritual, ceremonial Judaism where you think you can find God there and in the midst of that? So this, this pastor is wisely saying, we don't need to pursue Mount Sinai with the ritual and with the ceremony. Because if we do, we're in a place of horror. We're in a place of agony. We're in a place of terror. We need to instead be people who pursue this Mount Zion through the person of Jesus Christ. And, and really, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We need to press on in faith and be reminded again that the stakes are too high for us to be apathetic or passive concerning our faith in Christ. And so this morning, I want us to see our text this morning in two points, and you've already heard them. Point number one is this, for you have not come to Mount Zion. Point number one, for you have not come to Mount Zion. This is verses 18 through 21. For you have not come to Mount Zion, point number one. Point number two, but you have come to Mount, excuse me, I'm sorry, back up. You have not come to Mount Sinai. Yes, thank you. You have not come to Mount Sinai. Verses 18 through 21. You have not come to Mount Sinai. Point number two, but you have come to Mount Zion. But you have come to Mount Zion. And that's in verses 22 through 24. Verse 18, for you have not come to Mount Sinai. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest. And the sound, verse 19, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. I want us to notice in this passage, specifically verses 18 and 19. Verse 18 speaks of the visual horror that they were in. Notice the visual images that this pastor is trying to portray. You have not come, you, you, you have not come to what may be touched. This is a very tangible mountain. This is a very physical mountain, Mount Sinai. A blazing fire, we can see, we can understand that. Uh, and darkness and gloom and the tempest, the winds blowing. All over. I love the picture if you're sitting beside a child that has an ESV children's Bible. The picture in that children's Bible is, uh, is great. It's, it's a massive mountain. And all this group of people at the foot of that mountain and the cloud descending on it. And it just pictures very well this horror that they're seeing as they're at this, the foot of this mount, Mount Sinai. And then we see not only a visual, the visual fear that's there, this blazing fire, this darkness, this gloom, this tempest. But we also see in verse 19, the sounds here, the, the audible sounds that's also creating fear in their hearts. Verse 19 says, and the, trumpet, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. It's an audible fear. Now, our passage here is actually one that would cause these Jewish listeners to automatically, in their minds, go back to Exodus 19. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn back to Exodus 19 with me. Keep your finger there in Hebrews because we'll be back there. But I want us to see for ourselves what this church would have been reflecting back on as they listened to 
verses 18 and 19 of Hebrews 12. They would be reflecting back to Exodus 19 and 20. Exodus 19 and 20. Now as you turn there, you see Exodus 19 is this approaching of Mount Sinai that Moses is leading God's people to. And I want us to see these very things that I just talked about in Hebrews 12 are here in 19. Now I want you to notice well the context of what we're getting ready to do. Look over in your Bibles to Exodus 20, what's happening in Exodus 20. It's the Ten Commandments. God is giving Moses these Ten Commandments to reflect and reveal His will to His people. And so all of this is in context of God loving His people so much as to give them a revelation of Himself. And so we see here in Exodus 19 and 20, and I want us to note here what's taking place and and note it again as we read earlier in the service this morning. But I want us to jump down in Exodus 19, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care, do, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Notice this. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. This is not a God who can be approached, who can be, who can be kind of whimsically coming, come to uh, in any old way. It says in verse 13, No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. That's shot with an arrow. It's interesting that if they get too close to the mountain, right, either, and it says here, whether beast or man, he shall not live. And so if, if this beast or man gets too close to the mountain, the people of God were to either stone him or shoot him. Why? Because they can't get close to that person because they're too close to the mountain. And so the mode of killing was by throwing stones at them to kill them or to shoot them because they were not to get close to this mountain. When the trumpet sounds, a loud blast shall come up to the mountain. So you see the audible, the hearing here. These sounds that are being, being, that are coming from God's people. Jump down to verse 16. On the morning, uh, chapter 19, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning. A thick cloud on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast. Do you hear the trumpet there? See, that's uh, Hebrews 12. So that all the people in the camp trembled. They saw this event They heard this event, and it caused them to tremble. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it it went up like a smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So even the mountain is trembling. It's amazing. It goes on and continues to explain this. Turn with me, if you will, over to Exodus 20. Um, And I want to read just a couple more verses. Exodus 20, verse 18. After the Ten Commandments has been, uh, Ten Commandments are laid out for us in verses 1 through uh, 17. Verse 18 is where I want us to begin. After the Ten Commandments have been given. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, you saw they're seeing this thunder and this flashes of lightning. It's a visible experience. And the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And so they're hearing this trumpet and the sound of the mountain that's that's trembling and smoking. And the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off. Notice what they say, verse 19. And they said to Moses, you speak to us. Telling Moses, Moses, will will you speak to us, Moses? And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were fearful. To hear straight from God. They, they, they wanted Moses to intercede for them. And Moses said. And, and Moses said. Excuse me. And said to Moses. You speak to us. And we will listen. But do not let God speak to us. Lest we die. Moses said to the people. Do not fear. For God has come to test you. That the fear of him. May be before you. And that you may not sin. People stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is what they were thinking 
God's people were thinking. Turn back with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, They didn't have a Bible to turn back to during the time of Hebrews, right? But their minds were going back to this very pivotal time in the history of God's people. And this pastor, when he's reading, or he's, when he's preaching verses 18 and 19, he's saying to these people, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken of them. See, that's, that, was, that was Exodus 20, right? Where they're begging, don't, don't let God speak to us anymore, Moses. You speak to us. Because they were fearful that they would die if God continued to speak to them. All of this was in the context that we're seeing in our passage today. And I want you to notice that this was a very tangible mountain. This was a very physical place for these people to be. Just as a side note, it's amazing to me how enamored we are today as people. Specifically when it comes to experiences with God. Everybody wants to have this experience with God. This emotional feeling about a God. And they, they, want, they want to go to church and have these experiences. And every one of those are so non-biblical, they're not even helpful. I mean, they're, they're so petty and trite. The, God's people in Exodus 19 and 20 had an experience with God. And it's nothing like what so many people are after today. They stood before a holy God and they trembled. Oh, that we would see that kind of God and desire for God to cause us, as it says in Exodus 20, it says God was testing them that they may not sin. All this is within context of God giving to them the Ten Commandments. It was a tangible thing that they could see and they could hear and it caused them to tremble. But it wasn't just a tangible thing place, but it was also a terrifying place. You see here that it goes on, it says in verse 20 and 21, for they could not endure the order that was given. What was this order that was given? The reason they were begging that no further messages be given to them directly by God was, according to this verse, verse 20, it says, for, or because, the reason they were asking that that they no longer receive messages directly from God was because they couldn't endure They couldn't continue to stand there and receive this. They couldn't endure or stand stand to this this order that was given. It It was so distancing them. Verse 20, this order that was given, it says, was if any beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. You remember me reading that in Exodus 19? That any beast or man that would approach this mountain would either be stoned or shot. And they said, we can't endure. We can't we can't approach this God. Where there's, where there's this, this blazing fire and this darkness and gloom and tempest where the trumpet sounds are so loud and the words of God are so profound. We can't approach this God. We can't endure. And if we did, we'd die. If we, if we approach this God, if we go to this mountain, we would die. Indeed, so terrifying was this sight, verse 21, that even Moses... <laughs> You know, at the end, when I read in Exodus 20, it says Moses went to be with God. He was the one that went. But he even went, it says, with trembling, because it says here in our passage, and it says later on in Exodus, that when Moses approached God, even he trembled. It says, it says indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses himself, the very spokesperson for God, said, I tremble with fear before our holy God. It was, it was this mountain. Now, this pastor here, let's, let's, let's get our bearings, okay? I wanted us to feel the weight of this terrible, tangible mountain. Because this pastor here is saying, for you, church, you have not come to this mountain. You see, the forefathers of these Hebrews, the forefathers of these, the, 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 the moms and dads, great, 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 great moms and dads of these Hebrews, these Jewish people, were the ones standing at the foot of that mountain and said, we can't, we can't endure. And this pastor is saying, if you go back to your Judaism, you're going back to a mountain, you're going back to the regulation and the ceremonies that you cannot stand under. You will not be able to come into the presence of God with the rules and regulations and the rituals of the Old Testament and stand and endure, brothers and sisters. 
And so what he's saying to this congregation is, don't, as you're, if you're going to endure, don't think, well, I can either have Jesus in the Christian faith or I can return to my Judaism and do my own thing, right? Don't think that going back to that is something that you can, that's just, just an option A out of the three doors you have in way of the faith that you want to pursue. It's either Christ, and as we see in a minute, Mount Zion, or it is Mount Sinai. Now, note with me in way of application, just as we notice this. Notice that nowhere in verses 18 through 21 is the word Sinai mentioned, right? It isn't mentioned there. In fact, we see in verse 22, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion. So it actually explicitly mentions that mountain. But it doesn't mention Mount Sinai, though everyone knows that that's exactly what's being spoken of here in verses 18 through 21. Why then is the mountain not named in in verses 18 through 21? And it is named explicitly in verse 22 and following. Everybody I read agreed with this, so this isn't me just kind of making something up. It is because, brothers and sisters, there there are only two mountains. There is the way of Christ, Mount Zion. In the way of your own self-made religion. And that mountain can be named Sinai or anything else. You see, brothers and sisters, this morning, we, I'm not fearful that we are going to go back into our Judaism. Or that you're going to deny Christianity and go to Judaism like this pastor was concerned. My fear is that you're going to look to Christ and say, you know what? No thanks. I'm going I'm to pursue my own self-made faith. And when you do, you're coming to the mountain that can't be touched. You're coming to a mountain that is with... You're coming to a holy God one day with your self-made religion, your self-made faith, and you're coming before this holy, awesome, terrific, terrible God, and you're saying, look, here's my rendering of what I want to bring to you, God, and brothers and sisters, you will not endure if you approach our holy God by way of Sinai or any other self-made religion that you may have. You see, we need to trust in Christ. Christ in him alone. In verse 22, we have Mount Zion. But when we approach any other mountain, we're approaching this mountain called Sinai. You see, this other mountain, this mountain that we're going to call Sinai, is the mountain that so many end up finding when they're hostile to the things of Christ. You see, the atheist, the universalist, the agnostics are going to approach the same holy God and they're going to do it with their faith. And brothers and sisters, they will not endure. They're going to approach this God in their universalism, in their atheism, in their agnosticism. And they're going to approach this God with fear and trembling because he is holy and majestic and awesome. And they're going to approach him and they will not endure. But see, I really don't think many of you, I don't think many of you, now there may be some that may end up turning your heart in hostility away from God. And know this, you will face that mountain before, you will face that God. You will come to that mountain. And you will not endure if you approach him in your, in your atheism, in your universalism, in your agnosticism. But many are not going to be hostile. You know what many are going to end up being? You're going to be indifferent. Yes, I can have Jesus. But it doesn't really matter. There's other things in the world as well. See, these people are the people that I I fear are in the churches today that are good people. And they think their goodness is going to somehow help them stand before God. They're moralists. There's others who are philanthropists. I can't say that very well. Couldn't spell it if my life depended on it. But they they, they give a lot of good things. They're very helpful. They they help and they do and they love people and they care for people. Because isn't that really what we're about is we should love other people and help other people and give. And they think they can stand before God in their good services or in their being a good person or being a good old boy. See, they're indifferent to their faith. They're also these people who are hedonists. They live for the weekend. They live for their pleasures. I'm not going to follow Christ. I'm going to live for my pleasures. And I'm going to have Jesus kind of on the side. And yes, I am saved. I got saved. There's, this happened a long time ago. You're going to be approaching this mount. You're going to be approaching this holy God with your moralism and with your hedonism. And brothers and sisters, you will not stand if you're indifferent. If you're indifferent to Christ, if you're hostile to Christ, you're going to come to this mountain 
and you will not endure. Thirdly, as I thought through it, I fear that many of us probably have this danger most specifically, and that is that we're careless concerning Christ. It's not that we're hostile to Christ. It's not that we're indifferent to Christ. It's that we're careless before Christ. And brothers and sisters, if you're careless before Christ, you too will face this holy, awesome God. And you will not endure if you're being careless concerning Christ. See, I believe those who are careless are those who are in the church who may be legalists, who think their, 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 their list of things to do is going to somehow help them find it. You know, God's got to look at me and say, wow, this guy's really doing it, right? Or what about those who are liberals who say, well, God saved me, so it doesn't really matter. I can live the way I want to. God, is, God loves me. His steadfast love endures forever, so I can live the way I want to, and I'm free to do what God's called me to do because I am, I am in Christ. You're being careless. And you're going to stand before a holy God and you're going to realize, wow, my carelessness, my, my, my flippancy by which I just said I can do what I want to do because God has saved me, did not take into consideration that God is holy and majestic and awesome. Or what about the mystic or even the intellectual? Those who may be here this morning who base more on more, they base more faith in how they feel about God or the experience they have with God or how much they know about their Bible or the amount of data they can get from their scriptures than they do in trusting in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Brothers and sisters, you're going to stand before a holy God at this mountain and you will not be able to endure as simply an intellectual Christian or a mystical Christian. Brothers and sisters, I don't want us to be hostile indifferent or careless concerning Christ. Because all people will either stand, they will either approach their God through way of Mount Zion or through way of Mount Sinai, which can be under all kinds of other labels. There's only two mountains. There's only two ways. Our statement of faith in Article 17 says, we believe that there is a radical and essential difference between the righteous and the wicked that such only as through faith are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and sanctified by the Spirit of our God are truly righteous in His esteem, while all such as continue in unrepentance and unbelief are in His sight wicked and under the curse. And this distinction holds among men both in and after death. Brothers and sisters, there's two mountains. There's those who are righteous that approach Mount Zion. They come to their God through Zion. There's those who are wicked, who approach God through all the other self-made religions that are out there, all the different self-made faiths, all the different good standards that we set up for ourselves. And brothers and sisters, when we consider this holy God, we will not stand. This pastor was saying to his congregation, don't think you can approach God through this other mountain. We have, we have not, we are not to approach God through this other mountain through this Mount Sinai, because it cannot be touched. If we touch it, we'll die. It is a blaming, blazing fire. It is a darkness. It is a gloom. It is a tempest. The sound of the trumpet voice, God's words will be so amazing that we cannot endure, that we will, like Moses, tremble with fear if we come to God in that way. Now, do you feel the weight of this? I hope you hear what this pastor is trying to do. He isn't trying to beat his people up with a stick. He's trying to love them and say, if you don't come to Christ, there's eternal consequences. So let me spend the majority of my time this morning in verses 22 through 24. In contrast to this mount that is horrible and terrifying. Filled with blazing fire and gloom and tempest. Brothers and sisters, verse 22, point number two but you have come to Mount Zion. Brothers and sisters, you have come to Mount Zion. You have seen that in Christ we can come to God, this this holy, terrific God. We can come to Him through Mount Zion. And brothers and sisters, we have come through Christ to Mount Zion. This idea of 
here this word in verse 20 when it says, but you have come. It's also in verse 18 when it says, you have not come. That word is used five other times in the book of Hebrews. And the word is actually translated all other of those five other times to draw near. Listen to this. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence, here's the word, draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who do what? Draw near to God through Christ. Hebrews 10.1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Come to God. Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Hebrews 11.6, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe. Brothers and sisters, my prayer this morning is that we will draw near to God through the person of Jesus Christ. For we are all going to be brought to God. We're all going to be standing before God one day. If we're going to stand before God one day, my prayer, my plead to you is to come to God through Christ. For only in Christ can you stand. So I want you to see here in our passage, verses 22 through 24, don't let this shock you, seven points. <laughs> yes, we'll be done soon. Um, seven points. It's actually, you, if you notice, if you read through that, you'll see it keeps, he keeps, the pastor keeps saying, and, and, and. And there's six of those, and there's seven distinctions, seven things that he's saying, these are the blessings of coming to this Mount Zion as opposed to approaching God through this Mount Sinai. Here's the seven wonderful, glorious blessings that we have by approaching God through this Mount, which is Mount Zion. Blessing number one, we approach him, and it says here in verse 20, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. The heavenly Jerusalem. Point number one, the city. The city. Mount Zion into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see where the Mount Sinai was a tangible mountain that could be seen and touched, even though they weren't supposed to. This city, this mountain, is one that's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is a spiritual place. This is a place that's a Zion, a place that's not just the city. There is actually a Mount Zion. It's outside the city of Jerusalem. sits there even to this day. Not that impressive. Um, everybody I've talked to that's gone over there says you know, that you ask where my, Mount Zion is, and, and, and they point it out to you, and it's like this little rickety truck's kind of going up to the side of this hill, and it's just like nothing. It's just not a big, impressive place today. And God says, that's where I'm going to be present. So the hill isn't impressive because it's huge and large like Mount Sinai was. Awesome and wonder. God says, I'm going to rest in this little hill outside of Jerusalem. I'm going to show my presence there. And you know why people want to go there? Because they can be with God. Not because they're on top of this huge mountain. He's saying this mountain is a city that's not earthly. It's not an earthly place. It's a heavenly place. Hebrews 11.10 says, For he was looking forward, this is speaking of Moses, he was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's the city we're after. That's the heavenly dwelling that we want to go to. Unlike this mountain that's tangible in Sinai in the Old Testament, here he says that this is a city that's a heavenly Jerusalem. It's point number one. He says that they come to this. So here we may think that because it's heavenly or spiritual, then it's not real. But it is. It's more real than anything you can see. Next week, when we look at verses 25 through 28, we'll find that all that is that we think is real, the things of this world, as it says in verse 27, that is the things that have been made are going to be shaken. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to say, this is real. This stuff that you think is real, that you're living for, it's not real. Things that are real are things that God has established and made. He's going to shake all heavens and earth. All that is shaken. And then when everything crumbles, that which still stands, the kingdom of God, his city, will be shown for what it is. And that's a true reality. So point number one was the city, the city. Point number two is the festival. The festival. We see here in verse 22, it says, 
that we come to this Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. This festival, this is a joyous place in contrast to the horror, the horror and trembling of Mount Sinai. This is a joyous place. It's a place of celebration. It's a place of delight. It's a place of perfect worship. It's a place of absolute joy. It's a place of overwhelming celebration. It says that an innumerable amount of angels are going to be in festal gathering. We come to this. When we come and worship, brothers and sisters, on Lord's Day in the morning, when we're singing, do you know that we are joining in with the angels in heaven that are right now singing praises to our God? And that when we sing, we're joining in with a host, an innumerable host of angels singing praises to our God. What a joy. We think it's just us, right? We think God's just hearing my voice. And that is a sad commentary of God only hearing my voice. God hears the voices of all of his creation. And there will be a day when every tongue will confess and every knee will bow, right? Jesus says, I can make the stones cry out to me. All of creation is praising him. And on Sunday mornings when we gather as his people, we're, we're chiming in with the very thing that God has created these angels to be, and that is worshipers. And we are doing what God has created us to be, and that is worshipers. Revelation 5.11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders of voice of, of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. This is Revelation 5 saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what the angels do. And they're satisfied in doing it. They don't get bored. It's innumerable angels in festal gathering. This place, when we come to this mountain through Christ, this Mount Zion, it is a celebration. It's a delight. It's a joy. To come into the presence of God. Letter, uh, point number three. It's not only the city, not only the festival. Point number three, the assembly. Verse 24 says, excuse me, verse 23 says, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. To the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This word for assembly, some of you have a footnote there. It's actually a word for church. It's ecclesia. This word is translated some by, as congregation. It's the idea that God, God most often loves his people most when he gathers them together. You know, one of the most loving expressions by God to his people throughout the Old and New Testament was when he gathered his people. You know what God does when he gathers his people? He reveals himself to them. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a wonderful thing. In Deuteronomy 4.10 uh, Deuteronomy 4.10, it says, how, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me. This is God telling Moses, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth and that they may teach their children so. You see what God's doing here? He's gathering his people. God's telling Moses, gather my people so that they can hear my words so they can teach their children to love me and to fear me. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 9, 10. And the Lord gave me the two tablets. This is the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. Of stone written with the finger of God. So God's very finger wrote these tablets, the Ten Commandments. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on that day that I assembled my people. He gave them the tablets. God didn't give the Ten Commandments just to Moses. He gave them to Moses to give to God's people who were assembled. This assembling is a, an amazing blessing. Brothers and sisters, when we assemble on this day, when we assemble every Lord's Day, it is a blessing that God has given to us. It is a treasure. It is the way God chooses to bless his people and has for years and years. We need not think of it as just another thing to do on a calendar. This is one of the primary ways that God blesses his people is by assembling them and bringing them together. We see here in our passage in verse 23, it says, to the assembly of the firstborn. Of the firstborn. Jesus Christ is the firstborn among the brothers. Romans eight twenty nine, The firstborn of all creation. 
Colossians 1.15. The firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18. And when it speaks of here that we are the, that it says here he's assembling of the firstborn, it's all of those who are in Christ, the firstborn. We are being assembled by him. Hebrews 1.6 says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, speaking of Jesus coming into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And so this firstborn, Jesus Christ, is what we're labeled as here, as it speaks of this assembly, this assembly of what? Of people who have been in Christ, we are firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. Enrolled in heaven. And so this, this idea in Romans 20, verse 12, speaking of there being actually a book that's going to be opened, and our names are there. And when the roll is called up yonder, all of you were thinking it. I had to say it because you were thinking it. And when the roll is called up yonder, we will prayerfully be there. I actually went and looked that up in a, in a hymn, make, uh, in, a, in one of my hymnals, to make sure it was still there, and, um, and read through those lyrics. When the roll is called up yonder, those who are enrolled in heaven. Fourth, fourth, not only the city, not only the festival, not only the assembly, but forth into God, the judge of all. Into God, the judge of all. When we see this word judge, we also often think of the word judgment. But this phrase here actually is in context of this festival, of this celebration, of this role that's been, that's been gathered together. God's people who are part of the firstborn, who are assembled together. All of this is in confines of this joy. And it says here that when we come to this mountain, to Mount Zion, to this city, to these angels, this festal gathering, to this assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, that we come also to God who is the judge of all. He's the one who reckons all people to be either right or wrong, righteous or wicked. And in this case, it's not speaking of God as judge and judgment as much as it is that God is the one saying that these people are either right or wicked, righteous or standing outside of God. And it says when we approach this mountain, we're approaching our God, the judge of who? Here it says here, of all people, of all people. You see, sometimes we have this idea or this assumption that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and judging and that the God of the New Testament has a better attitude. And so he's forgiving and loving and his judgments are a lot softer because he's a God of understanding in the New Testament. We get this idea as well of the Old and New Covenant. The Old Covenant is the God who has an attitude. He's angry and mad and wrathful. He gave us all these rules so that when we break one, then he can lower the hammer and just kind of whack us over the head with a stick. But the new covenant is so much nicer because God is kind of this, um, this, this, this pansy, really. And this white guy with brown hair is really soft-spoken and really nice. And he goes around and he talks to people and tells them about how great everything is and loves children. And he understands when we mess up. Because, I mean, that's all we're really doing is messing up. That's the new covenant. Isn't it nice to be there? That's not the idea of Scripture. You see, the God of the New Testament is the same God of verses 18 through 21. He's a God who, when you come into his presence, you, like all the beasts, will die. He's the God that Moses and we will tremble in fear under. He's not a God to be trifled with. He's not a God we can endure under, Old or New Testament. So the question then is this. How, so how can we come to this mountain of God, Mount Zion? How is it that this pastor is saying we can come to this mountain? If God's the judge... And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's the same God of the Old Testament, same God of the New Testament. Then how can we come? And it says here that God is the judge, according to verse 23. The God is the judge of all people. And it goes on, and it says, and uh, I can't remember what number we're on now. What is it, five? Five. Um, it says, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect. God's judgment toward these spirits, which are the Old Testament saints, all of those who've gone before us, who've died, these spirits, and to the spirits of the righteous, this is God's judgment of them, they're righteous and they are perfect. They're with the Lord. God's right and just and holy judgment toward these saints who have gone on before, and we've got to assume these at least include Hebrews chapter 11, right? All of those who are in faith. They are spirits of God, and they are righteous and perfect before God. 
They've arrived, brothers and sisters. They're before God. And God's judgment of them is that you're perfect. You're righteous. How? How in the world can the saints of old in anybody come before a holy, amazing God and God in His righteousness and holiness judge them and say, you are righteous and perfect? How can He do that? Verse 24. This mountain that we come to is a mountain not only of the city, not only of the festival, not only of the assembly, not only of the judge, not only of the righteous, but of the mediator. Now, if you're, you're dozing off, wake up right now. Because this is where I wanted to get the entire sermon. This is what I wanted you to see. How can the saints come into the perfect presence of God and God in all of his righteousness and justice not just look over their sin and kind of be passive about it and say, I understand, but instead judge that sin rightly and say, you're perfect and righteous before me. How can God do that? Because all of those who come to this mountain, Mount Zion, are those who are, according to verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. You see, all of Hebrews is about Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant. The entire book, and I'm not going to go back through, and you need to read back through that. The entire book is about the blood of goats and lambs will not suffice. But the blood of Christ is more precious than all of them. And when the blood of Christ is, is placed upon our sin, it will cover our sin so that we can come before a holy God, enter into the holy of holies, come into his presence. How? Righteous and perfect. We have a mediator, brothers and sisters, Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it has been enacted by better promises. Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Here's the point I want you to get. This is what I want you to hear me say. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. I'm going to read this because I want you to get it. This means that the same fearful, dreadful, terrible wrath of the blazing fire and the darkness and the gloom and the tempest of back in verse 18, the awful sound of the trumpet and the voice whose words which made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken, the amazing holiness which causes even the beast to be stoned when, touched, when they touch the mountain, and the very, the very presence of God that terrified a Moses who was the intercessor for God, all of that horror that was due because God's wrath and His holiness were just and right is placed upon the person of Jesus Christ on our behalf. God hasn't become less holy and more understanding of our sin. He rightly and sufficiently and totally and perfectly laid the claim and the penalty of our sin. That holy, awesome God, that terrifying and terrible holiness. He laid it upon the person of Jesus Christ. So that we can come to the mountain of Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable saints. Why are they in festal gathering? Because they see the redeemed. And they know God has showed His steadfast love. How can they assemble as the firstborn who've been enrolled in heaven and worship and adore the God who is the judge of all? Because they have a mediator, brothers and sisters, and they're righteous and perfect before God. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we have been made healed. We are like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the gospel. It has the dread and the holiness of a God who is to be feared. And it has the mercy and grace of a God who has shown his wrath on the person of Jesus Christ that we may be redeemed. How did he do it? What means? How did he, how did Jesus so appease an, all, an awesome, holy, amazing God? Last point, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of what? The law. 
When did Jesus, when was God seen as terrible and horrific? It was in Exodus 19. What did he do in that, in that scene, in that experience? He gave them the law and they said, we can't endure. We can't live under this law. We can't, we can't abide by this law. We can't do it. Jesus came and fulfilled the requirements of that very law. He fulfilled the justice that was demanded, the holiness that was required. And he fulfilled the new covenant by the sprinkling of his blood. And that's why today we take the cup and when we take the cup together, I read this to you. And he, Jesus, took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. Why? For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, this sprinkled blood speaks a better word than Abel. Why is that? Well, Abel was not a voluntary sacrifice, was he? His life was taken. His life was taken by his brother. And it says that his blood cries out from the ground for justice. Jesus' blood sprinkled Jesus' blood sprinkled was a voluntary sacrifice and it cries out, justice has been done. You are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So brothers and sisters, Hebrews 10 verse 19. Turn there with me. Hebrews 10 verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That word is to come, right? Like coming to Mount Zion. Let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us pray.